Yeah, when, when you don't want him, he hangs around. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 474. It's recorded live December 3rd, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where as I hear it, we have 18 days until the days start getting longer. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing, Mac? Very well. And that was even brought up at the supper table tonight of when is it going to start getting light? <laughs> yeah, 18 days when you say it that way doesn't sound too bad, but just to get to how dark it is now. That's 36 days. <laughs> so we've got a month before we, uh, we give a day that's longer than today. Yeah. I'm ready for it. I, so am I, I mean, when the, when the, did the time change, you know, they set the clocks, you know, spring forward, fall back type of stuff. That's when it really hits you yeah. and it just starts getting worse and worse from there. I, f- I finally today had all the potholes removed from my driveway. My, my nephew came in with his, uh, equipment. I had, uh, a semi load of gravel dropped in the driveway. That was probably last year, the year before. And we did it with, you know, we spread it out with rakes and shovels and wheelbarrows, but there's still quite a bit there. And so, uh, potholes had started to resume. So he came in and, and leveled it off. So I'm ready for winter. That that's kind of the sign. If you don't do that, then you're. Whoever plows your driveway ends up taking half the driveway with it. Well, the sooner it gets here, the sooner it'll get over with. I think that's something about the COVID also, right? Yeah. Well, I'm just hoping that when the snow's gone, so is COVID. Yeah, that would be a, a great change. Yeah, it's going to be, it's still an interesting time. But at least it sounds like they've got a couple of decent vaccines out there but i think the big deal will be how many people are going to wait just to see the side effects a year down the line i'm not i'm not going to be like day one getting it my daughter had a shot as uh working in the emergency room to get it right away and she opted out um in fact i don't know anybody who's opted into this early release program but uh, you know, I I think that uh, I usually tolerate those sorts of things fairly well, even though I know this is a new way of doing it. But, well, there's uh, one. I mean, if you know it's not a placebo, that's one thing, because they're not part of the test people. Yeah. Oh, the placebo people that that's got to be rough to, because I I saw that some of them they were actually asking people to get the shot and then mingle in public like you know they were vaccinated and i'm thinking you've got half the people are on the placebo yeah <laughs> that's yeah ain't gonna be me though <laughs> yeah i'm glad somebody can do it uh-huh yeah so 
Yeah, the way I look at it is that, you know, all the trials I've done now are just making sure it's not outright poison. Yeah. And it's just a little bit of it being used by other people for a while. So, um, yeah, I, I doubt I'll get it in December. Maybe the end of December. We'll just have to see. Um, yeah, I'm seeing conflicting reports on how many doses are going to be available. They're talking well, depend about. On, depend on which manufacturer you get. Right. Well, but that's the other thing is that, you know, most of the stuff I've heard is talking about a single manufacturer. If you have three or four that are approved, who says which it is? And you know that, uh, you know, your insurance plans are going to sign up with one who's given them a really good deal and say, hey, this is the one we're covering. You want the other, you have to pay for it. I think the one in the UK starts this week. Uh, it would make sense. I think the US, we had uh, the next time the, uh, Food and Drug Administration was going to meet to approve it was December 10th, but it's kind of thought it's just going to be a formality. You know, as long as uh, nothing odd comes back, we should have at least two that are approved, if not three, by then. I thought it was interesting, and I think what is that uh, one committee that makes the decisions on who gets it first talked about doctors, nurses, and the vital people who do all the services for everybody else. Yeah. And then the individuals in nursing homes, because if you look at the number of people who got sick and how many died, very high percentages from those those places. So you want to take care of them people. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the intent with this first round. Um, you know, we'll just have to see how many doses, how quick they get out. I was listening to the county. Uh, meeting today and they were talking about just different things like they've got tents and everything already so um yeah they, they said that uh you know normal people won't be first on the list but i think it's going to get to us pretty quickly uh, only because they're ramping up i mean if you're just going to do healthcare workers you don't need the infrastructure that's uh prepped and available yeah so I just remember you line them up and you go through in the shot line in the army and, and, you, I, weren't and, getting, and you weren't getting just one. <laughs> yeah. Cause the, the County has two tents that they'll be setting up. And then they've also got, you know, like a half a dozen locations that would be inside, you know, fire departments, yeah. public safety buildings that will be available and ready. So we can hope, we can hope it's going to come here pretty soon because like everybody else, I'm sure we're all just extremely tired of it. Uh, I saw the the numbers today. Everything looked like it was, we're on a downward trend. I know they're waiting for the, there's a, they're thinking there's going to be a Thanksgiving jump. Yeah. But I don't know how much we're really going to see of that. I mean, I think there are going to be some cases that will be talked about in the news a lot because it will be, you know, somebody's family of 50 people and one person came in and 48 ended up getting it. But I, I think, I think for the most part, you had Thanksgiving with people you've probably been regularly seeing, or you're in the same households. Like my, you know, my parents, we didn't get together, and you know they live just a couple miles down the road. So, uh, you know, maybe we're the exception, but yeah, you know. no, we didn't. Oh. We just stayed at home and had turkey breast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we we cooked a turkey. It was a. Uh, yeah. Oh, you cooked yours a day, a couple of days later, though, because. Yeah. Yeah. I was, <laughs> you yeah, talked about that last week. Yeah. 
that's for for us it just worked out yeah uh, so thank you everybody who's in the chat room we have eric and derek and dave showed up we saw karen a little bit earlier but i don't see her in there now. oh there she is yep yep she's popped in so hello karen uh glad to see everybody in there so if you are ready we're gonna go ahead and jump right on into the news get it for yeah this first article we have up is if you remember that boat fire that happened in california well the captain's been indicted um uh, captain the scuba diving boat that caught fire and sank off the coast of california last year killing 34 people who were trapped below deck was indicted tuesday on federal manslaughter charges for one of the deadliest maritime disasters in recent u.s history jerry bolin 67 was charged with 34 counts of seamen's manslaughter for misconduct negligence and inattention by failing to train his crew conduct fire drills and have a roving night watchman on the conception when the fire broke out september 2nd 2019 the indictment said as a result of the alleged failures of captain bolin to follow well-established safety rules a pleasant holiday dive trip turned into a hellish nightmare as passengers and one crew member found themselves trapped in a fiery bunk room with no means of escape u.s attorney nick hannah said in a statement bolin and four other crew members who'd all been sleeping escaped from the flaming boat after he made a breathless mayday call all 33 passengers and one crew member perished in the bunk room some of the dead were found with their shoes on leading to speculation that they were trying to escape but were trapped by flames that blocked a stairwell and a small hatch or only exits to the deck above all died of smoke inhalation according to coroner's report the rare federal charges against bolin were brought under a pre-civil war law aimed at holding seamen holding steamboat captains and crew responsible for watery disasters that were far more frequent at the time. Each count carries a possible 10-year prison term with the conviction. Federal prosecutors said they informed Boylan's attorney of the indictment, and he was expected to surrender federal authorities in the coming weeks. A public defender who represented Boland did not immediately return a phone call, an email message, seeking comment from the Associated Press. His former defense attorney, Michael Lippmann, or Lippmann, yeah, said they had expected the charges for more than a year. Federal safety investigators faulted the owner of the vessel for lack of oversight, but they were not charged with any crime, though the investigation is ongoing. I hate the term accident in this case because, in my opinion, it was not an accident if you fail to operate your company safely, National Transportation Safety Board member Jennifer Homedy said in a hearing in October. The company that owned the boat, Truth Aquatics, has filed suit in federal court under a provision in maritime law to avoid payouts to families of victims. The family of 32 victims have filed claims against the boat owner, Glenn and Dana Fritzler, and the company. The cause of the fire has been under investigation for more than a year and may be impossible to pinpoint. It began in an area of the main deck where divers had plugged in phones, flashlights, and other items with combustible lithium-ion batteries. The fire happened in the final night of a three-day Labor Day weekend scuba diving excursion near Santa Cruz Island off Santa Barbara. The 34 victims range from new deckhand to scientists, engineers, to parents with teenage and adult children. They came from far away as China, Singapore, India. Two passengers were celebrating birthdays. The sole crew member who died, Allie Kurtz, 26, had previously worked as a cook in another Truth Aquatic boat and was thrilled with the promotion. Her family said she loved the water and had a childhood aspiration to become a pirate. Arr. 
marine biologist Christy Finstansett, uh, who co-owned World Diving Adventures and chartered the Labor Day weekend trip, first put on dive tank at the age of nine, done hundreds of dives in a rugged, windswept Channel Islands off Santa Barbara's coast. And they go on and talk about some more stories, but this is, I don't think there's really any surprise that he got charged. Um, I think what will be interesting is if they find the owners responsible, because I think they put quite a heavy burden on the captains uh, and not so much on the owners unless the owners can be proved negligent. And then the suit that they the owners did, uh, we talked about before, but that's kind of like a legal thing that they almost have to do right away. But it's a kind of a, you know, maritime law is some of the oldest law that we've got because it just seems to be kind of in our history. A lawsuit, I think, is more academic and for prosecution aspects, for the yeah. aspect of suing, they've only got so much money. So you're not going to get, it's, it can't be a monetary reward. Now, I don't mean that as a reward, but monetary right. is not going to make any difference. Well, and I, I know yeah. their budget's going to be very limited on that. Yeah. But they well, did settle out of court for a good number of the people. Yeah. Well, and I think that's because yeah, they, they do have insurance on the vessel. And you know the insurance company is just looking like, how how can I reduce the risk of what this could potentially be so they've they put a number of what they think could be a worst case and they're looking to not get to the worst case so i think that's what they're they're trying to do well i think it's already the worst case but yeah and and i think some of the laws were were based on if you you know because shipping companies were kind of like the original corporations you'd have a a ton of investors and there's like three levels away of uh from the boat, you know, it's more of like, I've got money. This is a sure thing. I put it in and then they want other people to deal with uh, mm -hmm. the day-to-day -day operations. And if you go in, uh, sue the heck out of these companies, then I, at one point in time in our history, that would have been a huge economic disaster because then you've got, and one boat goes down and then you bankrupt the rest of the fleet because of, of lawsuits. So could be some of what plays into that. It'll be interesting to see what they come out with and the verdict and the time or punishment. Mm -hmm. Well, this next one uh, went a little bit better than that. A missing boater rescued 86 miles from the shore clinging to a capsized boat. I thought that was it, he said. You know, the world's most interesting man? Well, I'm just the opposite, 62-year-old Florida resident Stuart B. told the news reporter. Interesting or not, when B. and his 32-foot pressure craft, the Stingray, went missing from Port Canaveral Marina in Florida last Friday, he became the focus of an intensive ocean search and rescue mission. B. experienced engine trouble early in the trip, figuring he'd be able to fix it himself. He didn't radio for help. He had fallen asleep Sunday night after tinkering with the, mo tinkering with the motor only to be awakened by a gush of water flooding the cabin that pushed him up towards the bow and out through the front hatch as the stern sank. It was sometime after midnight. An experienced sailor B knew he was in real trouble once the stingray stabilized. He made several dives back inside to try and retrieve his personal locator beacon, but to no avail. Unsure how much longer he would be able to hang on just after sunrise, B was prepared to make another attempt 
when he caught sight of a cargo freighter aptly named the Angelus. Using his shirt as a flag, B was able to get the watch crew's attention. After the Angelus pulled as close as possible, flotation device was dispatched to reel him in. The crew then used a ladder to haul B on board. We just rescued one man from a capsized boat at sea, the captain of the Angels confirmed in a satellite call with the Coast Guard, B. Stuart B. B was found floating in 86 miles of water, or from oh, 86 miles from shore. Uh, it was a matter of uh, pure providence. The case, honestly, is an incredible outcome. Petty Officer First Class David uh, McAuliffe, spokesman for the U.S. Coast Guard, told the New York Times, I think it demonstrates the strong ties the maritime community has with one another. We're thankful that he's going to be able to get out to dry land soon. After confirming B's identity, Coast Guard search was disbanded. B opted to remain aboard the Angeles until its next scheduled stop in Wilmington, Delaware, where the Liberian container ship was set to deliver cargo bananas. Wow. I was extremely freaking lucky. But <laughs> yeah. what happened that his boat started to sink? Now, that's what I don't understand. I mean, because he had a personal locator beacon, which is what my first comment was going to be. But if uh -huh. it sank while he's in asleep, you know, there, have, there had to be something else wrong. Well, it he was having problems with the motor. So that was the first thing. And it must not have been something too unusual because he, he didn't call for help. He just thought it was something, you know, that he could repair. But he fell asleep, so I don't know what that was about. I mean, not to say you couldn't fall asleep, but at some point, if you're struggling and struggling and struggling, then it seems like you'd call. You wouldn't just keep trying. Um, it, it appeared he was going to attempt to try and fix it in the morning, but then, like you said, uh, it flooded. And, and how lucky is that? I mean, if you're going to flood, that it kind of jets you out the boat because it could have, because it went in stern first. So he must have just had the, the a hatch open where he could have gone out the, the, the front, the bow. That's what I could. I, I don't have a clue. I mean, a 32-foot boat, that, and you a, take on a, water. Yep. And just because you're working on the engine, what has the engine got to do with the ports that open up to the outside? No, I mean, and the only thing I can think of is that he is that he had a slow leak, and he didn't notice the boat getting lower in the water and it got to a point where you know the the stern went in and or a wave went over the back you know, and then once you get the rails down uh blow the Are water you gonna go 86 miles from shore in a freaking one with one engine 86 you know, it, miles what was he doing out there at 86 miles I, i'm always amazed at people in the, uh, you know, the Gulf and, you know, the, on the East coast, they're just used to doing distances much, you know, for me, five miles in Lake Michigan, you know, I've, I've got a plan on a planet, a, a plan, you know, do we have two boats? Do we have a backup? You know, there's, there's just no room to mess with it. But I, and you know, when you, uh, see some of those East coast boat trips, you know, they're running 18 miles, like, like the Megalodon tooth dive when they do that one out there. They're, they're out there for quite a ways, aren't they? I don't think they're out there quite a ways. I mean, not a 86 couple, I mean, miles, but I mean, yeah, it's more than, 
It's more than 10 miles, I think. Oh, it's usually in 120 feet of water. So I don't, I'm not sure how. Yeah, because it's it's got to be diving oh, depth. Go yeah. 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 They, Dave's saying you have to leave at 5 a.m. for dives. So uh, yeah, I, can, I can't. It seems like uh, it's a long run. So uh, maybe somebody will get us some details and we'll, yeah. we'll relay well, that. Was, but, he was freaking lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And it's. Yeah, I can see where he did not want to inconvenience the people who rescued him. It's like, you know, I'm not going to be any problem. And wherever you're stopping, I'm stopping. <laughs> and it's and probably all the bananas he could eat, too. Well, he, when he gets off, he should buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. Well, maybe that won't make any difference. He's already had his luck. Yeah, he used it all up. Well, then a little bit closer to home, here's another sinking. A barge sinks in Grand Traverse Bay. A barge sank in Grand Traverse Bay on Monday. Now the U.S. Coast Guard and EGLE are getting involved. It has all started Monday morning when someone in Elmwood Township noticed a barge was sinking. The barge is about 50 yards offshore. It appears to be 30 feet long. Fire Chief Keith Tampa said it's hard to tell for sure because it's already partially submerged when crews arrived. He says he believes the water there is about 10 feet deep. Crews didn't believe anyone was on board. They were told the owner had been notified and is on his way to the scene late Monday afternoon. A salvage team will have to be brought in to recover the barge, and the Coast Guard is sending pollution control team in case any oil or fuel leaks. The Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy has also been notified. So, stuff sinking all over. It, we we think that uh, shipwrecks or something happened a long time ago, and they're happening every day. Oh, yeah. And just like this next series, so I've got three articles. We won't read all three of them, um, but uh, some of them I got for the the photos. Yeah, I was going to say the photos were the thousand words easily. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, let's see. Somebody shared one of the photos. Eric in the chat room earlier shared this, and then I found a couple others. So this first one, I think this is the one that Eric had. It says, and this one is from, oh, wait, this is a different one. That's Chesapeake Bay. Uh, there was another one, the uh, Interesting Engineering, which is the one he had shared. So let's start with that one. The cargo ship carrying 4,000 Hondas sliced open with a chain. And the photo they have right there, it almost looks like one of those exploded diagrams. You see, like, oh, this is how a ship's made. You might remember hearing about the MV Golden Ray, a capsized ship, the cargo of 4,000 Hondas, and that was reported on in August this year. The MV Golden Ray capsized it started listing only 23 minutes after its departure from Port uh, Brunswick, Georgia, all the way back in September of 2019. Plans to dismantle the 106-foot-wide and 20,995 deadweight-ton capacity ship were unsurprisingly delayed by COVID-19. Now the dismantling is going full steam ahead and is a sight to behold. And, and just taking a look at some of these photos. Yeah. Did so, you look at the chain as it's cutting through? Uh, which, which is. Third, oh, there. Third, yeah. Yeah. Third, third shot down. Yeah. Uh, the, that doesn't look big enough, does it? The, no, and it doesn't look chain. like I was thinking more of like a chainsaw chain. That just looks like a regular chain. Because wow. you can you can and see things in the legs. 
Yeah. Right. But if you go down one more picture, now that's the side of the chain I thought they were talking about. But see that chain? That's yeah. a chain. Yes. But what's interesting is is I was picturing that it had to be sharpened. That's just a chain, and they've probably yeah. coated it with what probably some sort of uh, carbide or something. Does it? Do they say? Eric's saying it's diamond coated, which uh -huh. would make sense. But it think of it as a chain with frosting. <laughs> that's that's just what it looks like, and it cuts through. Um, and then there's one shot, and it might not be in this one. Maybe we'll go to the next article. There's one shot which <laughs> this this one it, they almost need a banana for scale because you can't tell because you see this barge and you see the cars and you could almost picture a person being half the height of of the whole thing. I mean, it looks like it's it's toys. It's just hard to grasp how enormous that section is that's been cut. Uh, what we're really saying is when you get this and listen to it, go home and find the site because the pictures yes. are well worth looking at. Yeah, we have the link, all the links in the show notes and you'll take a look at it. And then you go down to a few more images and you see how they've reinforced it. So what they've done is they've created reinforcement around the hull and welded to it. And I think that's where they mount the that crane to. And then they run the chain in through the gaps. I like that one section of the hull they've got there where all the cars are falling down in that trough of each deck. And at uh -huh. the bottom, it's a smushed. And towards the top, yeah. you can actually see a couple of cars. Like, well, maybe yeah. I could take that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other ones at the bottom are just pulverized. The ones at the top, and you can get the wheels off. And that's about it. I say the ship is a total loss. Insurance estimates put at 70, 80 million plus another 80 million in lost cargo on board. On board. Um, environmental impacts have been a major concern for water keepers and residents of Georgia coast. Unified Command has stationed recovery crews for any oil and debris in the shoreline on the water. Environmental protection barrier. There's a 150-yard safety zone around the EPB. 200 yards for recreational vessels. Protective boons have also gone up around sensitive locations around St. Simmons Sound. I remember they said it's going to be very noisy, but I heard didn't hear any report on how bad that noise really was. Yeah, and that's what and I'm I looking know, I was going to say, each of, those, each of those chain links are 80 pounds. Yeah, I mean, I, it's impressive, but I was kind of imagining something even bigger. Uh, the well, removed. You, Go ahead. Did you, did you see the part where they say each link stretches one and a half feet? No, it was hard to tell in that photo. That's how big the links were. Yeah, that's it says a removed uh, chunk. You know, when they slice it, is one hundred and four feet, weighs three thousand one hundred metric tons. The first cut uh, in the bow actually began on November sixth. Took three weeks to complete due to several setbacks, including a broken cutting chain and delays due to tropical storms. On Saturday, the country's largest crane vessel transported a huge piece of steel onto the lar largest barge in the United States, sent it down the Brunswick to a local site where the scrap will be further secured for sea transport to Louisiana for recycling. 
an SUV fell off during Saturday's transport, but was caught in the mesh net barrier spread underneath as a forethought of such an incident, the Brunswick News also reported. Uh, I'm just looking through it to see if we can see anything else. Yeah, but it, it's worth it. You, you, you really want to take a look at the pictures. And there's uh, one article that has 25 photos. Uh, and they're kind of all taken at the same time. Yeah, the photos themselves are really outstanding. <laughs> Half the photos have people on jet skis motoring around it. So interesting. And here we have a shipwreck unearthed in St. Augustine. I think Earlier, that's the thing we talked about last week, only this is different pictures of it. Yeah, there were two articles I found this week that were talking about it. Uh, I I only did the this this one. The other one, which I actually found first, uh, didn't have as many photos because we really like to see the photos when it comes to these wrecks. And this article is from a student-run newspaper. that uh, says the, the which is the unfspinnaker.com. Student government reporter Nathan Taroff wrote this. Over in the month 1800s, a shipwreck was uncovered in Crescent Beach in St. Augustine Beach, or St. Augustine. Beach erosion and changing tides led to the discovery of the wreck. The St. Augustine's Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, LAMP, research arm of the uh, Lighthouse Maritime Museum, is currently studying and analyzing the wreck. Adjunct professor and public relations communication specialist for St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum, Dr. James Smith gave an interview with Spinnaker and revealed that the organization has uncovered so far. Uh, Dr. Smith explained how beach erosion has gradually revealed the wreck, but it does get slightly reburied at high tide, making Lamp's team's job more difficult. He says, uh, he was explaining some of the things they'd found the wreck. He explained how the ship was very large, so the team didn't know what part of the ship they were working with at first. It was just Tuesday morning when the team discovered it might have been the stern, the back of the ship, the wreck itself lying at its side with the bow or front facing the ocean and the stern facing the beach. One of the most important questions the team had was whether or not the ship was American. The measurements of the wood had been made in inches, which means the ship was built in the United States, Canada, or Great Britain. However, certain planks were curved in a certain fashion, indicating in indicative of U.S. ships of the period, so it's most likely an American ship. In the logs of the museum, there's a mention of a ship about nine miles south of the final wreck, August 29th, 1879. As for the history of the ship, the team searched other records and were eventually able to key, find a keeper's log and newspaper from 1880s, which indicated the ship named Carolyn Eddy was reportedly shipwrecked in the area and was hauling a heavy load of lumber. Dr. Smith explained how the ship had likely left the Jacksonville, but was forced south and broke apart in the coast, but all the crews swam ashore and survived. As for the future of the wreck, Dr. Smith elaborated how they have no plans to remove the wreck. He would like to leave it there, also while safeguarding it from people attempting to disturb it. He also described how they had taken samples of wood from the ship sent it to an expert at Flager College with the hopes of determining the date it was built. The team also hopes to analyze and measure the whole wreck so they will be able to create a 3D model of it and figure out its size. 
Yeah, and next hurricane comes by, they can build a big old coffee dam around it or a protective yeah. barrier at about $10 million to save it. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, earlier I'd mentioned the, uh, the county meeting. They did have some slides of work that was being done in the, on Silver Beach. And they had placed some, uh, I, it, it's, it's always amazing how far the Lake Michigan has come up to the road there. I can remember yeah. from that road to the waterline being 70, 80 feet. Yeah. I put some pictures out from 19 or from over the last 14 years. I think I put showing you what it looked like. And then what it looked like as of yesterday. And I was out oh, there again. Did you look at the photos I put on Facebook? Oh, I, I haven't seen their, let me, let me uh, okay. <laughs> this, this may take us offline here. But I hadn't seen your photos. I I saw during the meeting they showed some, and they were putting up uh, look like cribs to help stop some erosion. Yeah, they're they're almost it's uh, in two sections. They had to put extra gravel because it was collapsing the sidewalk already, and the sidewalk yeah. by the freaking road. Yeah, yeah. That that's. I would not be surprised if they closed the road there. I would if I was them. Because in the winter, when you start getting the storm surges, you know it's going to break over the road. And unless you're going to have somebody there constantly monitoring it, who's going to be the, the poor fool who drives on it and collapses into the lake? Let's put a picture. Okay. That's at uh, Silver Beach. That's Park and Lake Street, where you make that corner. You can see all the rock they've just put in there. Because with no rock, there's no road. Well, they're, they're going to try and maintain that road there. Cause you know, where those used to be poor people's houses, those are now multi-million dollar houses. Well, this here is one I took in 2011. Okay. I'm just looking at the photo you just put, put in there or trying to as Right. My my wonderful internet is grinding away. It's like I almost need that Jeopardy music playing as it tries to load it. Well, you figure that bottom one is twenty eleven. Yeah, a lot of beach. And this would be twenty fourteen. I just put in. You can see how it went from eleven to fourteen, how it's getting shrink, shrink, shrink. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I just got the second one to load. So huge difference. Oh yeah, big time. And if you fly the coast that I have been taking pictures the last couple of years, almost the entire length now from South Haven through Michigan City is uh people have put seawalls up and rock barriers. So the shipping and the uh, coastal people have made a lot of money in the last couple of years trying to save areas of the beach. Well, you figure for many people, that's a significant investment they have in that beach house. Uh, it's amazing what uh, the erosion has been doing. I did some posting last week on, if you're at, uh, oh, I can't even think of the name of the street right now. Oh, what the heck is the name of that darn place? 
Oh, Hilltop. Oh, yes. Corner of Lake yeah. Drive and Hilltop. Yeah. That barrier across the street. Mm-hmm. If you that barrier there, I, do, I put three pictures there. That's the barrier, and that's maybe a car, a little more. And once you hit that barrier and go through it, the next two pictures show you the slope goes all the way down to the lake. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always thought looking at that barrier that you know, and you get in the summer and you get in the graduation season, you're thinking there's going to be some drunk who's going to uh, go and hit that barrier. Uh, but without the barrier, you would just launch down to the water. <laughs> oh yeah, you're gone. You're gone. Yeah, and that's that's right around the corner from where I work. Yep. So, uh, but I'm I'm getting my office gets closer to the lake every day. Then it ain't gonna take much. But there's no really way you can fix that. No, no. This is you. There's a natural slope to different types of materials you know sand has a very gradual slope i mean you're not going to maintain a a sand cliff it's eventually going to erode down even in the best of conditions and then gravel and clay and you know everything has an angle that it will will go to and that goes to the water surface and it even means from the water surface out to the middle of the lake. I mean, it's eventually going to work its way. We're we're relatively young from when Lake Michigan was formed. You know, how many yeah. thousands of years ago, tens of thousands were? Not 10,000. It's only 10,000. 10,000, yeah. In the glaciers. A, a single 10,000. So that yep. when it cut it, and ever since then, it's been trying to fill itself in. And uh, we're, we just, you know, when you get the high water, it just accelerates it a little bit. And what we call high water may not really be that high. It's just in our memory of what it is. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. What's the next one that we're going to chat about? Maritime archaeologist recovers artifact after a three-year wait. It's the, if I can pronounce it, Shydam. Maritime archaeologist has finally managed to recover artifacts from a wreck of the Shy Dam after waiting more than three years for the right weather conditions. In September, over a course of eight dives, David Gibbons managed to excavate and retrieve three 25-kilogram 16th-century bronze merchant weights from the wreck, a 17th-century 400-ton Dutch merchantman captured by pirates seized by the English, and requisitioned by the Royal Navy before coming to grief in 1684 near Gunwall, off the west coast of the treacherous Lizard Peninsula. The wreck was discovered in 1971 by Anthony Randall, designated under the 1973 Protection of Wrecks Act, and since 2016 had been investigated under the direction of Gibbons and that of Atlantic Scuba, Scuba's Mark Milburn and current licensee of the historic England for the site. The three weights of great interest, not only as objects used during the period, but also because they're unique among surviving Portuguese weights for their age, size, and decoration. They're among the oldest and most unusual artifacts to be recovered from the shipwreck off Cornwall. The most striking feature of the weights is the Portuguese coat of arms cast in the relief on the side, comprising a shield surmounted by a helmet, a dragon's crest, and flanked by army spheres, a symbol adopted while a prince, still a prince by future king 
Manuel I reigned in 1495 to 1521 that became associated with Portuguese maritime dominance in the age of discovery. Other markings visible on the weights are small symbols of a ship stamped above and below the coat of arms. Weights have been declared to the UK receiver of Rex and are currently under conservation in preparation for museum display. So I'm assuming those would have been like a trade weight or a calibration weight. I'm not sure. I'm trying to find one. I posted some pictures of what you were talking, of what they recovered from this. So you say he's waiting for the right diving conditions. Does it mean the right diving conditions when he had time? I don't know, unless that's... Because the, the pictures I got from it all seem to be surface. Yeah, he mentioned they had done some excavation. They look encrusted down below, but when you see them up above, the three weights, looks like they did a little bit of cleaning on them already. Yeah, it's cool. I'd like to see something being displayed. Yeah, we can find something like that in the river. Okay. Yeah. Let me give you a different picture of that weight. You did see it or not? Uh, I saw the three, the four photos that you put in there. Is there another one? There's the weights you're looking at right there. Yes. That's got to be a different, that, that's called the first three photos or from that, from a dig that's called that. But I'm looking at the other pictures and these are all underwater. Mm -hmm. And those are the weights you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first picture uh, was what they were showing at the top of the article. So you're thinking that's not the same weights? Oh, the weight the weights I'm showing you are the ones they got off. Oh, uh, okay. Put a picture of the other one too, of the diver down on it. Mm -hmm. To get a look at the uh visibility and what have you. Yeah. Yeah, visibility wasn't too terrible, but I mean that might have been the best day all year. Uh just did, day recording, Craig. Now when did we lose them? They said we lost them at the bottom at the start of the encryption article. Oh. So well, so, yeah, we didn't lose too much though. That that was a fairly short one. So, so if we if we if we didn't end up talking a a lot about the Enigma machine that was found, just go ahead and click on over the article and take a look at the the images. And the the kind of the final note that we made when we talked about it was that the condition of the machine in the photos is not the condition of the what they found. <laughs> that was some stock photos the author put in just because if you saw what, what they actually found, it just doesn't look quite as impressive, but it does to me. I, I think, I think the little bit of character in the one they found. Yeah. Looks like a typewriter that's been corroded. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, so we were, we, we, that finished scuba in the news. And then we started talking about dives and, uh, Karen, you said, got a dive in. She's doing some metal detecting? Yeah, she was out. Yep, she was metal detecting for a ring. Uh, she's got to still be in so she can make some metal notes or something. But I think I, I referenced that she had a little zippy problem and a cold glove. And she put some probably location weights out because I believe she's going to go back. So yeah, I know she, she got said, wet. Yeah, she said uh, glove flooded and zipper was leaking. Too many weeds to get close to where the ring might be. Uh, 
she and her mom went out the next day and moved the anchor and put some floats on a line. So that's good. Glad to see somebody got in. Well, I turned down two jobs like that because you got to have two people. Yeah. You got to have somebody. Well, I like at my age, I like somebody to back me up, you know, put a line to drag my body back. And it's hard (laughs) to do that back zipper. Yeah, it is getting awful tough. Uh, I I find I can only do the back zipper when the wetsuit is new and I am thin. (laughs) Much after that, it becomes a challenge. Yeah. Um, and then Kevin, I saw, did some drone work, and then the uh, drone took off. Uh, he lost a connection. He he blamed his phone. He thought his phone got too busy, and it lost a connection. But then he was able to kind of slightly regain gain it with the controller, but ended up losing it. He did f- finally find it. Yep. Uh, it had broken a leg. But he said that he watched the video, and after it landed, it was twitching around like an injured creature <laughs> or possessed. He was thinking maybe it was the, the AI had taken over. But uh, it's pretty impressive what those those uh, drones are capable of doing. Oh, absolutely. And the video from them are outstanding. Yeah, I mean, 4K video is pretty normal now. Which is I've seen as... some they're talking about with 5K video. I don't oh, know yeah. what that is. Well, it's just 5K. Yeah. What what you're getting, the nice 4K, I mean, gosh, most of us can't see 4K. I've got a 4K TV, but uh, I don't pay for the 4K satellite package. And when you're streaming, it's rare for most of us to be able to, to stream 4K. Uh, but what, what's nice with 4K is that it, if you're doing video editing, you can crop it down to HD so you can kind of pan. So if you had a fixed 4K video, you could move around. So you can, uh, like some people are doing uh, like video, you're, you're able to make it look like you're doing a multi-camera shoot with one camera and you just uh, zoom in on different parts of the video. In fact, I've started mm-hmm. to see this even in, in some of the, the live TV cop programs. You'll see where they'll, they'll they'll even do some of the crappy video from like an interview interrogation room. They'll crop into it and then do some uh, cleaning up of the video uh, just to make it look a little bit more impressive. But uh, like 4K to 5K, that's really what you're getting. You're getting uh, some extra room for cropping and editing. You can also, uh, when you do uh, stabilization, uh, you can take a 5K video and put it to 4k and it will can really smooth it out because it's got to give up some of the, you know, it, it kind of takes the average of, of the movement and then zooms in on it and crops it. So they're all cropped the same. Um, and then we're even starting to see 8k and, and higher, but, uh, you know, part of the, part of the problem with that is how much, how big the size of the files are that you're recording and then the software to edit it. Uh, I mean, people who are doing this and making money on it are even complaining. And, you know, us, most of us doing it as a hobby, uh, it's a challenge. I mean, you, you starts getting prohibitively expensive. Uh, Mac, do you have a dive safety story for the week? Well, I got a dive when it's called quick comeback. 
The diver is a 43-year-old male who is an experienced dive master with more than a thousand dives. He has gone diving almost weekly for 18 years. He is in good health, physically active, but he is also slightly overweight and smokes half a pack of cigarettes daily. He does not take any medication, has no medical conditions, and recently has been diving every other day, usually not deeper than 110 feet. Not too bad for a 43-year-old. The incident. The dive was scheduled to go to the deck of a wreck at 90 feet. Midway through the descent, the diver lost his weight belt. He continued down the descent lining and onto the bottom at 114 feet. There he searched unsuccessfully for his weight belt for about 13 minutes, then terminated the dive and began his ascent. Without the weight belt, and as he became more buoyant due to the continued reduction of air in his tank, he was unable to control his ascent surfacing in less than one minute. His computer showed an ascent violation alarm. Feeling weak and nauseated, he swam back to the boat, and as he boarded, got assistance in removing his gear, and we recalled having a mild headache, dizziness, and headache. He lay down on the deck of the boat for the 15-minute ride back to shore. According to the other divers on boat, he seemed to be awake with eyes open, but could not respond to his fellow divers. On the ride to shore, the boat captain called EMS, and a local unit was waiting at the dock. Emergency personnel placed the diver on 100% oxygen, began intravenous fluids en route to the hospital. The complications. By the time the diver had arrived at the emergency department and was evaluated by the attending physician, he could describe in detail what he felt. He denied any pain or discomfort. Physician could find no weakness, numbness, or tingling. And I just lost my notes. Hang on a second. Sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Not, not a problem. Well, you hate that. Yeah. I, I, I well, it just worked. time. Okay. Okay. He, he was, a, you know, had no pain, discomfort, couldn't find any weakness, numbness. And the physician called Divers Alert Network just because. Concerned by the rapid ascent and the period of unresponsive, unresponsive change in behavior after the dive, the Dan physician felt an arterial gas embolism could not be ruled out. And the patient should be treated to the nearest recompression chamber. <coughs> The treatment. The diver received a second evaluation at the hyperbaric facility. On further examination, the diver started not to feel quite like himself, was dizzy and easily fatigued when he tried to walk. I heard a click, so is Craig still there? Yep, he's still there. Okay. He was given a full U.S. Navy treatment, table six, four hours, 45 minutes. Afterward, he said he felt much better. He remained overnight for observation and experienced a return of the unusual fatigue the following day. He was treated with another U.S. table treatment, table six, continued to improve. He received a third and shorter final hyperbaric oxygen treatment table the day after. After the third treatment, he experienced complete resolution of symptoms. He remained without symptoms and returned to diving after six months. 
as was suggested strongly by his doctor. The diagnosis. The diver's rapid ascent and subsequent disorientation, dizziness, and unusual fatigue pointed to AGE, arterial gas embolism. The discussion. Problems can occur during any dive where the diver has 10 or 1,000 dives. While there were missed opportunities for this diver to correct his buoyancy problem and to avoid the rapid ascent once the weight belt, the weight belt was lost, the central issue in this cause was failure to follow the safety principle all divers are taught. Had the diver followed his training, been able to call on the assistance of a buddy, the accident might have been avoided. While it is unclear what caused the diver to lose the weight belt, the problem might have been discovered and corrected during a good pre-dive buddy check. When the diver reached the wreck, could not locate his lost weight belt, he faced an obvious buoyancy problem, less air in the tank, no extra weight to counterbalance the increased positive buoyancy. One option would have been to return to the line, use it to control his ascent. Without a line to hold into a positively buoyant diver can also empty the compensator, flare his arms and legs to offer more resistance while rising up in the water column. These emerging techniques will slow the ascent rate, but they do not fully provide control. Even though oxygen wasn't available on the boat, the diver received good care from the local EMS and the emergency medical department, and the prompt call to Dan was the first step in ensuring that the diver got the proper care and treatment for a very successful outcome. Uh, they went through the last part. They said symptoms of age can be anywhere from paralysis, weakness, convulsions, dizziness, visual blurring, personality change, unconsciousness, sensation of breathing, chest pain, disorientation. That's a standard symptom of AGE, arterial gas embolism. The items is, I think I would have terminated the dive and came up before I had any kind of issue like that. Not to mention putting 15 minutes on the bottom looking for something at 120 feet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, I, I agree. The, the first thing would be try to get back to the line. Yep. Because from there you can control your ascent. Yep. Or, you know, if, if it's not, a, if it's attached to the wreck, absolutely, you should be able to. And yes. it didn't really identify whether or not it was a BC or, or a dry suit. Right. And now I would have liked to have known that myself. Well, very good. Always something more we can learn. Well, it's one of those items, though. Would you, you know, I have dropped a weight belt, but not in 120 foot of water. But what would you have done if you were halfway down, you dropped the weight packet, you felt comfortable going down, would you have gone down to look for it or would you have gone up, got some weight, uh, I, went, then went back down? I'd have definitely gone up, gone back up. But that's just how I am with weight. Uh, there, there would be no good outcome for me going, you know, as soon as they lose the weight, that's a dive ending condition and you just call the dive. Because you're not making and the I situation think, any better by continuing on. But I, I think because if you're experienced, you're going to say, eh, I can get down, because obviously he did. I can stay down pretty easily, which he obviously did. Only problem is he didn't find the weight. Yeah. So coming back up, he, 
again, I don't know if he had a BC or dry suit. Okay. Well, here's where I would contradict myself. You know, what's the ultimate depth and what's the conditions? If I'm in the river and it gets no deeper than 20 feet, if I think I can get down to the bottom, I would go down because I, you know, I'll, I'll find it. I mean, that's almost like surface dive, breath hold, uh, conditions. You can blow and go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, on, on a wreck dive out in Lake Michigan or a large body of water, no way I'm going. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go up. And then uh, usually in a boat dive, it's not like a river dive where it's semi-solo. There's there's other divers. Uh, they're more than happy to find the weight and then uh, harass you for the next you know, 20 or 30 trips. True. That's true. And you probably but it does, it does it call into play, though, is how comfortable are you with the dive? And sometimes yeah. you're too comfortable, and that's when you start to get into trouble. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's what we've got for this week. Um, and hopefully, we get some dive plans going in. I know there was some discussion. You know, we missed our normal turkey dive. Yeah. So. Yeah, the weather went to heck in a handbasket real quick. Yeah. Yeah, this time of year, you just never know. There's there's no guarantees that you're going to have any any condition. I actually brought all my gear in from my truck, and I'm storing it in the basement now. So I'll hopefully sometime this weekend and next weekend get some stuff organized. And I think, yeah, I'm, I'm probably due for some maintenance on some gear. So it's a good time to get it in because we're kind of in yeah. between seasons now. You know, we're, we're too early for an ice dive. I mean... If we do have any ice, it probably won't be till mid to late January down here. It doesn't seem like we're going to have any. It doesn't feel like it. We feel, we seem warm for this time of the year. We've had some snow flurries, and I was flying the other day, yesterday, matter of fact, and uh, it'll look really nice around here, but you got the new buffalo, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wait a minute, they got a dusting. And the further south I went, down towards Laporte, it's like, Damn, they got snow. And you could see a snow band. I could see South Bend pretty good because I went up to, what, seven, 8,000 feet. Uh-huh. And that's like, well, I see South Bend. They don't have it. Straight ahead was a band. All around, there's a big curve from uh, the coast there at Bridgman all the way around through Michigan City up to uh, New-, New Buffalo, Michigan City. Nice and not, you know, no snow, everything beyond it was snow. And you can see a snow squall out in the distance about, oh, 30 miles away. Well, that happens when somebody doesn't shake the snow globe up enough. <laughs> it just kind of, you know, flurries on the one side and everything else is clear. Yeah. We'll like to thank everybody for listening to the podcast, you know, downloading it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're to that time of the year where we've got some bills that come due. And in fact, I got a notice today saying time to pay up. So we will be doing that. We've, we've got just enough support to get us by into, I think this is our 12th season coming up. Yeah. Hard to believe. Yeah. Fanfare of the trumpets. Yeah. Not not too far from episode 500. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I still, I'm amazed that uh, we got past 100 and we'll have had a good run. 
longest uh, running. Yeah, just as I started talking about other podcasts, that's when Craig left. Probably oh. felt that we were not supporting him enough. It's okay, Craig. You can stay. So I, I, I've got a bunch of jokes, but nothing that really just stands out. So you just tell me when you've had too many and we'll end it there. You know, as we start talking about COVID and that there's, uh, you know, different cures, um, kind of reminds me of, uh, some of the old cures that we we're talking about a while back, you know, what's the difference between how you cure bird flu and swine flu. And uh, if you have bird flu, you need a treatment. If you have swine flu, you just need ointment. Well, that is cute. I started out good. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So here's another one. The other day while uh, scuba diving for seafood, it dawned on me every time I saw a, cra a crab or a lobster with scrap food, it was frantically searching for a place to hide it so it could eat it alone. Then I thought to myself, that's shellfish. Okay, my, my threshold of amusement is pretty low, so that was not bad either. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, you know, the, with the weather changing, I was sitting in traffic the other day, uh, which is probably why I got run over. Now, the one-liners are good. I can see you on stage now. Yeah, yeah, here we, here we go. I'll, I'll be here all week. You know, why can't you hear a pterodactyl go to the bathroom? And it's because the pee is silent. Cosmetic you surgery. Looked, you looked a long way to these, didn't you? Yeah, cosmetic surgery used to be such a taboo subject, but now you can just sit about Botox and nobody raises an eyebrow. <laughs> uh, okay. Did you hear about the two thieves who stole a calendar? They each got six months. I'm, I have my eyes closed. I see you on a stage. <laughs> I see the spotlight, and I see you doing these one-liners. Yeah, my grandfather uh, has the heart of a lion in uh, a lifetime ban from the National Zoo. Uh, what's green fuzzy and would hurt if it fell out of a tree on you? The pool table. A communist joke isn't funny unless everyone gets it. I think I saw something in the curtain. It was this long pole with a hook in it. Oh, it's getting ready. <laughs> so, so, so here's one to really ruin it. What's the difference between a dirty bus stop and a lobster with breast implants? One is a crusty bus station. The other is a busty crustacean. Where did you find these gems? <laughs> so some of them I've just had for a while. They just, uh, I usually don't do the one-liners. It just doesn't really kind of fit in with the format. But after a while, I mean, these have been marinating for a while. They've been in the, the jar in the basement. And I think the lid came off. But. So until next time, go out there and get wet. Stay safe.
Dave, did you hear about the cannibal that passed his neighbor in the woods? <laughs> I finally got my book on clocks in the mail today. It's about time. <laughs> Seriously, that, that's why I envision. I'm just got my eyes shut here just sitting, and I see this guy up there giving me these one-liners. And some of them are pretty darn good, though. I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. That's another one from Dave. And it also helps all when you're drinking. <laughs> yeah, it does. See, I've, I've, got, I've, I've got a little bit. I'm not going to pour myself anymore, but I've got about an inch left. So uh, uh, what does a blackbird say when he turns 80? I'm 80. Um, let me see. Don't worry if you miss a gym session. Everything will work out. Ever try to eat a clock? It's time-consuming. Five guys walk into a bar. You would think one of them would have seen it. I still like them, though. <laughs> These are clean jokes. Come on, people. Yeah. Well, as Jimmy Durante would say at the end of his spiel, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. Uh, oh, I, I'm going to have to look at that. Derek said he sent me on Messenger early today. Uh, also, Karen had a good one earlier. Did you see that one, Mac? No, my my Discord screen has disappeared again. It's like, where the hell did that go? Yeah, I'm trying to find it. Yeah, this one's from Karen. It said, once there was an auto mechanic who worked at his home. He had a dog named Mace. Mace is a good dog, but he had one bad habit. He ate grass. Now, most dogs eat grass, but Mace ate all the grass. The mechanic kept Mace in the house most of the time. One afternoon, when the mechanic was working the car, he dropped the wrench. Now, the grass had become overgrown. The mechanic looked and looked and looked at the tall grass, and he couldn't find the wrench. It was late in the afternoon. He decided to stop work for the day and went for uh, morning to look for the wrench. Somehow, during the night, Mace got out of the house. The next morning, when the auto mechanic opened the door and the sun was glistening off the wrench, Mace had eaten all the grass in the yard again. The mechanic was thrilled. He lifted his eyes to the sky and said, Amazing Mace, how sweet the hound that found a wrench like me. Uh. <laughs> Recording some spare jokes. I've, that's why I've thought about doing a channel, which is just the jokes. I, I keep thinking about the... the uh, the unexplained stories podcast. I do think we need to do that. I like the UFO stuff. Yeah. But I think that's one that we have to do in person. And I'd probably do it as like a video podcast where we could do clips. Yeah. Yeah. So we got it. We got to get the pandemic over with, and then we can do that one. But what's it, what would the name be? Don't have a clue. Yeah. No, that could be the name. I don't have a clue. <laughs> no, no, we don't have a clue. But don't you think it's odd that, you know, they've actually admitted that it's there. We don't know what it is. And yet nobody's hyper about it. Yeah, distraction. Well, I don't think it's really been talked up that much because... I mean, they've admitted they don't know what it is, but they're not saying it's alien. 
And that's the... They don't say it isn't. They say it's anything but. But you know as well as I do, if anybody on, on this planet had that technology and has had it for 40 years, if they're one of us, we'd have killed each other for it. Maybe it's just a time machine. Maybe it's us, but from the future. A lot of different time machines. Good night, Karen. We'll catch you later. Yeah, a lot of different time machines, that's for sure. Yeah. Where are you seeing messages come up? They're in the live show chat. Oh, let me go over there. I'm not there. No. Pictures. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. Yes, I didn't see that. Those are from last time, right? They're from last time and this time. Yeah. Um, oh, damn. Yeah, we have oh, I like some. That. I like that yellow with a, it almost looks like a face. Looks yeah. like SpongeBob. Yeah, SpongeBob. Yeah, Derek. Yeah. He's just rubbing it in. <laughs> oh, why do midgets don't have to spend three feet apart? Okay. Oh, wait, I didn't get, I, I thought I got Craig to leave, but I told him to join. Ugh. Yeah, Craig's still there. Yeah. Yeah, when you don't want him, he hangs around. 